thank you for joining us today for worship. Always good to have you with us. I'm glad that you've been hanging in there with us. It's getting so much closer for us to be able to actually gather again, those of us who are in Michigan and locally, of course, unless Rick, you and Dee want to come out here from Colorado, we'd love to have you. <laughs> but we're glad that you all are gathered wherever you happen to be. And uh, we've arrived at Daniel chapter 11. If you do what I do and you have a laptop, you can actually open that in Bible Gateway or Bible Hub or whatever online Bible resource you have available and keep it open in a different tab. And that way you can sort of toggle back and forth. Or if you have an, an actual Bible, and they still make those, you can open that to chapter 11 of Daniel because I'm going to be walking through verses 21 through 35 today. And I think it's always good for you to be able to reference what's happening as I describe things so that you can see things in context. And so I hope that you would keep that in mind as we work through this book together. Antiochus. The fourth. We saw a prequel last week looking at some of the people who came just prior to his arrival on the scene as king in Syria. And then we're going to look at another figure that comes into play today in history, not mentioned in that specific scripture that we're looking at, but because we have that clear lens of history that I said we've been looking back through, we know for a fact that this is one of the guys that played into a lot of what Daniel was predicting, even though it was history written in advance, as we talked about last week. It's always good to know what's coming. That seems to lessen the anxiety a little bit. And even though we know something may be painful, it helps to know the facts going into it. Example, I've shared this again uh, probably three times in the last 19 years. So if this is old news to you, just uh, forget it. But I got my arm broken on the playground at school, fourth grade, got a new elbow right about in the middle of my forearm. It would have enabled me to reach around corners really well, but I kind of wanted it straight and it was a little scary. So we got to the orthopedic doctor and I asked him first question out of my mouth was, can you make it straight again? He laughed and he said, oh yes, that's what we're going to do for you today. And then he gave me three steps that I knew to expect. Step one, gonna get a shot. Temporary, there's gonna be a little bit of a sting, but not that big a deal. And then things were gonna feel a lot better because it was gonna be a nerve block and it was gonna help cut the pain way down in my arm. Second step, not so pleasant. <laughs> that was gonna be the setting procedure. And then the third was gonna be mildly uncomfortable, but not nearly as bad as step two. And that was gonna be wrapping it in the good old fashioned plaster cast, which they had way back there on Mount Sinai and just at times just beyond Moses when I got my arm broken. But he got me ready for these steps and he talked me through exactly what to expect with each step. I liked that because even though I knew that there was something that was gonna be painful, I could sort of steal myself for it. I could prepare for it and sure enough, he said, now step one, just gonna get a shot, but it's in a strange place because it's near the nerve bundles. And so it was kind of under my arm, never had a shot there before. And he was right, it was painful, but only for a second. Things started to go pretty numb pretty quickly. And I thought, that wasn't too bad. I think he was very accurate in what he talked about. Then when he came back in after that had had a chance to take effect for a bit, he said, now this is the step two that I told you about, it's gonna be rough. I'm not gonna lie. I've had grown men, strong, athletic men cry when I do this. And I didn't know if that was supposed to make me feel better or worse. But 
I steeled myself for that. He said, I'm going to have my nurse grab you from behind. And she put her arms from behind me all the way around my chest. I thought maybe it was to keep me from running out of the room, but maybe it was just so it could give him leverage because he said, I'm going to have to pull pretty hard because I need to separate the two bones that were broken clean through so that there's a gap between them. Not a big gap, but just a little gap so that I can line them up, kind of like when you break a piece of pottery and there's some little jagged edges, but they match up just like a puzzle piece. And he said, we're going to put those puzzle pieces back together just the way we want them, because that's the way we want them to heal together. And then we'll do step three, which is to wrap it in and cast. So he was that specific, which gave me a chance to grit my teeth, hang on for dear life. And I may have had a few tears. I'm not sure. Um, forgetfulness is a really good thing over that many years ago, but it was very painful. Uh, he was right. He was very accurate. And when it was done, it was done. And it felt so good for him to be finished with step two. And then he was right. Step three was not that big a deal. When you've been through an F5 tornado, an F3 ain't that bad. Wrapped it in this wonderful plaster stuff, which people could sign with their magic markers when I got back to the school. Why all this information about stealing yourself for something that you know is going to be painful it's because that's what's happening in chapter 11 of daniel that's what god through his heavenly messenger talking to daniel about what is going to be happening in israel's history is setting him up for he's trying to communicate to god's people that something is going to be very uncomfortable very painful it's going to be a season that you're not going to want to live through and it's going to be tough for many of you but and here's the good part. It's not going to last forever. It is temporary. And there is going to be relief at the other end of that stuff. So what we see in chapter 11 is that he's actually preparing for two great crises. One is a crisis that's going to be happening in the fairly near future, relatively speaking, in Daniel's life. And then another one in a much farther future event. Now for us, the farther future event, number two there with the Antichrist, that may be getting closer every day. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that we're getting closer based on some of the things I see happening in our world today. But for today, this is what we're going to look at. Antiochus IV. This is that first great crisis. The one guy who's going to come on like gangbusters and do some things in Israel and to Jerusalem that they are not going to like. But it's temporary. We're going to see his character, his career, and the crisis itself, all captured for us in just this little bundle of verses right here. Antiochus's character. Well, we're going to see as I read through some of the verses, 21 through 24, some of the character qualities that jump out at us today. Let me start reading at verse 21. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, by the way, because I just like the flow of it. The next to come to power will be a despicable man who is not in line for the royal succession. He will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue or trickery. Before him, great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. With deceitful promises, he will make various alliances. He will become a strong leader despite having only a handful of followers. Without warning, he will enter the richest areas of the land. 
Then he will distribute among his followers the plunder and wealth of the rich, something his predecessors had never done. He will plot to overthrow the strongholds, but this will last for only a short while. Hmm. So we have Antiochus IV, the younger brother, who took over after his brother died, and this one was a contemptible or despicable person, as we see in verse 21. Now you may recall from a previous chapter that Antiochus's contemporaries had given him this unusual nickname that was a play on one of his self-chosen names. He had chosen for himself Epiphanes, which would mean the manifest God. He was a legend in his own mind. But because of his erratic and idiosyncratic behavior, the nickname Epimenes, you hear the similarity, seemed a little more fitting because it meant a madman. People deferred to him and sort of faked their way through their praises, but behind his back, they didn't really care for him. His contemporaries thought he was dangerously deceitful and contemptible. Now, last week, we learned that Antiochus IV had been taken captive by Rome when they took those 20 young men. He was one of them. And the phrase, who has not been given the honor of royalty, which appears in verse 21, applies to Antiochus. That's what starts to let us know, among many other things, that he's the guy who's being talked about in this history that was written long before it actually happened. It's amazing, as I'm tracking through not only what the prediction was, but what the history was, I'm sort of paralleling back and forth between those two in today's talk. And you'll see how accurate the predictions were. Uh, it was his brother Seleucus, or Seleucus, as we might say, who had been given the honor of royalty because he was the one in line for the succession because of the bloodline. But because he died and his younger brother had to come on board, that's why that verse is there for us. Well, as we know, Antiochus must have escaped from his captivity. He had to have, if he was going to become king, and he did. And he made his way back home to Syria. The authorities in Syria, though, knew what his character was like. They didn't really want him to become king. But he used his manipulative and deceitful skills and made a deal with the king of Pergamum, a city where Paul later passed by and which shows up in the book of Revelation. So if it sounds familiar, you may have heard it before because it's a Bible city in that region. The king in that region of Pergamum gave Antiochus enough money and supplies to get into Syria, and through both clever maneuvering and intimidation, which means he just killed everybody who got in his way, <laughs> Antiochus seized the throne after his brother died. Well, these qualities of flattery and deceit and trickery and manipulation all paint the picture of a leader who would use all available means to get what he wanted, which mostly was power, control, and wealth. Does it sound like any politicians that we might think of in contemporary society? <laughs> Daniel eleven twenty four. he will try to win over his followers by distributing wealth. When the richest provinces feel secure, this is eleven twenty four. he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. Antiochus was so arrogant, he even believed his own press releases. He believed his own nickname, the Manifest God. So he would loot the temple treasuries in different cities, 
because he thought, well, if he was the manifest God, then all that treasury money was actually his anyway, right? Historic documents contain reports of Antiochus literally, and this is crazy, he would literally throw silver and gold objects onto the street in different places, and then he would stand back and watch the show, laughing at the people who would scramble around in the dirt fighting over these objects. There's an important ending to this passage, though. The last part of verse 24 says this, he will plot to overthrow fortresses, but this will last for only a short time. That's the important thing. In other words, the days of Antiochus IV were numbered. Who were they numbered by? Yahweh. Let's look at his career. Starting in verse 25, with a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south, that would be the king of Egypt. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. So this is not boding very well for his future either, as we can see. Here's what we have from the historical record. What I just read to you was the prediction of what was going to be happening. Now let's get to the historical record. Antiochus's sister, you might recall her name, Cleopatra, had been the queen of Egypt since her husband, one of the Ptolemies, died. Cleopatra's teenaged son, which, as we know, of course, would make Antiochus's uh, nephew, Ptolemy VI, that was the nephew, became king of Egypt after his mother passed away. Because Ptolemy VI was so young, he depended heavily on his advisors. They convinced him to put together a large army, and one of their goals, unfortunately, was gonna to be to conquer Israel, which was located along the trade route to the northeast between Egypt and the nations to the north and east. And they also wanted to conquer southern Syria. Now, Antiochus IV, got wind of these plans. And so he started mustering his own army and he had plans to march down south and head to Egypt. As was prophesied in verse 25, Egypt was not able to stand against this conniving Antiochus. Antiochus took his nephew hostage and planned to use him as a negotiating tool. But it didn't work out so well for him because the ad, uh, advisors in Egypt knew that Ptolemy VI's brother, P7, we'll call him, was waiting in the wings. And in fact, after P6 was captured, they just simply put P7 on the throne. It's helpful to have some stand-along brothers in the wings. Since Antiochus was such a man of intrigue, calculated manipulation kind of guy, he opted for some of his tricky diplomacy to try to restore his nephew to the throne. So he proposed a treaty. Well, both Antiochus and his nephew, P6, were equally deceitful. And even though the nephew agreed to sit down and talk treaty, that's kind of like talking turkey, but with peaceful things in mind, both he and his uncle ended up deceiving each other because the acorn didn't fall far from the tree. Verse 27 says, two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. And that's exactly what happened. As predicted, the schemes of both these leaders failed. 
In his own mind, Antiochus was the master of manipulation. He swore to his nephew that his main purpose was to secure his nephew's place on the throne in Egypt. He says, I'm here for you, buddy. I've got your back. Actually, he was wanting to stab him in the back, but Antiochus went back on his word and ordered his troops out of Egypt. But as soon as Antiochus had withdrawn, the nephew, P6, reconciled with his brother, P7, and by solidifying the family leadership ties, Antiochus was left high and dry with no power and no access to power in Egypt. You know the old Egyptian Ptolemy family saying, the family that connives together survives together. That was anonymous and probably made up. <laughs> Verse 28, the king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, which was a phrase that referred to Israel. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. And that's exactly what happened in history. History shows us that as predicted in verse 28, Antiochus was headed back to Syria after plundering Egypt, but he stopped off in Jerusalem and he set his heart against the covenant of God's people. And he started to declare certain laws and made certain things illegal for them and then left. So let's just throw a rock at the hornet's nest and tell them you can't do some of these things that you've been doing for years. And I want you to start becoming more like Syria. And that was an influence by his culture and his worship of different pagan gods, and especially the God of Zeus. And then he takes off. So how do you think the people in Jerusalem are gonna feel about that? I don't think they're gonna to be too happy about it. So he got back to Syria, discovered that his nephew, Ptolemy VI, had deceived him. And do you suppose that he said, well, let's just live and let die. Uh, forgive and forget, time heals all wounds. Nope. <laughs> that just lit a fire under him, and he said, I'm going to go back down there, and I'm going to exact my revenge. So in verse 29, we see this. This is the prediction. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Uh-huh. What do you suppose the appointed time meant, and why was this different than another outcome? Well, it was God's appointed time, the God who is sovereign over all the affairs of men and all leaders of all nations, and he had determined that this would be the right time for Antiochus to invade Egypt. But this time, ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart, as it says in the first part of verse 30. Well, that's exactly what happened. Why would we expect that? <laughs> because prophecies come, all came true. It's almost like this was history being written in advance. Where have I heard that before? Antiochus turned to the Mediterranean this time and he assembled his navy. He thought, okay, some of by land, some of by sea, let's go by sea this time. And so he set off along the coast, down south and around the corner, turning left, I was turning right if he was heading south. I have to picture the map in my head. You know what I'm talking about, guys, you map readers out there. The women are just going, turn left at the Kroger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm getting the evil eye over here from that one. I'm sorry. Sometimes they just need landmarks. That's all I'm saying. But he stopped at the... Men do too sometimes. <laughs> Men sometimes need landmarks too. When you get to the fork of the road, take it. Okay. He stopped at the Pelosium at the eastern edge of the Nile Delta, not far from Alexandria, which is where his nephews, Ptolemy's six and seven, 
the guys who had made up and so they had this family alliance going on. They were conniving and surviving together. That's where they were hanging out. So he's got his Navy in there close and he had grown, Antiochus had grown kind of myopic with revenge, focusing so narrowly on retaliation that he wasn't really keeping his eyes out in a three-dimensional view of some other things that were going on around him. He was met by another Navy and he saw the flags on the ships and he thought, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. These are my allies from Rome, including his old buddy Gaius Linus. And he's thinking, this is good, right? And uh, we'll see about that. Gaius Linus went to see Antiochus where he was camped. And these two were old buddies from back when Antiochus had been in exile. Antiochus is probably thinking, man, this is great. I'll be able to enlist my old buddy to join forces with me against the Egyptians. There's no telling what we can do. We'll conquer this part of the world together. Didn't go down that way. When Gaius approached Antiochus, Gaius wasn't smiling. He presented Antiochus with an official looking piece of parchment. It was a decree from Rome signed by the Senate, very official. In short, it said, hey, keep your hands off of Egypt. And one other thing, you have to disassemble your Navy and go back home to Syria. Gulp, that's not how he was predicting this was gonna go down. These ships of Rome were the ships of the Western coastlands from verse 30 that opposed Antiochus. And it says that he was going to lose heart. Oh, boy, did he ever lose heart. Antiochus tells Gaius that he really needs a little bit more time to think about this proposal. And Gaius finds a stick and draws a line, a circle around Antiochus in the sand. And he says, fine, no problem. Take all the time you need to think it over, but you're not leaving this circle until I get your answer. Antiochus realized there's probably only one answer that's going to be acceptable. He wasn't really in a position to negotiate at this point. It was one of those, I'll give you my answer when I'm good and ready. Okay, I'm good and ready. So he decides it might be best if he were to do as Rome had suggested. And he ordered that his navy be disassembled. He climbed back aboard his own ship and sent the order for his troops to leave Egypt ASAP. Well, this sets up the crisis. Starting in verse 30b, we start to see how this sets Antiochus up to go kick somebody else's puppy because he's the bully on the block that didn't get his way. And Israel is the puppy. My apologies to everybody who owns a puppy. And then it says, he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant, AKA Israel. And he will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Ooh, that doesn't sound good, does it? He's going to show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Hmm. Well, what might you expect an arrogant tyrant who's used to getting his own way all the time to do when he's forced to humble himself, tuck tail and run away? Well, he had boiled up a lot of seething anger and he needed a place to vent it. So he thought back to some of his interactions with the folks in Jerusalem the first time he had passed through there passing some new laws and telling them that certain things they were doing were illegal. And he thought, you know, those people were pretty arrogant and they were defiant and they didn't want to do what I told them they should do. So they became 
the place that he was going to take out all that anger. When he got back to Jerusalem, Antiochus ordered his soldiers with swords drawn to offer incentives of gold and silver to those who would forsake their covenant, which meant essentially that they were going to forsake the covenant with Yahweh. They're going to stop worshiping Yahweh and they're going to start worshiping Zeus. Now, if you were a Jew in Jerusalem at that time in history, this is the time that was being predicted, the time when there's going to be a lot of pain, but it's not going to last forever, then your options were limited. You either accepted a monetary reward, bribe, to forsake your faith in Yahweh, or you received harsh punishment, which could come in the form of a beating, being thrown in prison indefinitely, or if you were particularly stubborn, or people just thought you were stubborn or just didn't like the way you looked that day, you could be killed. History reveals that soldiers were even sent, and this is despicable, with orders to kill women who had followed the Jewish custom of having their Jewish boys circumcised, because that was an evidence of setting them apart as the covenant people. And Antiochus wanted them to forsake the covenant. Verse 31, first half of that verse says, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. That's what happened. His soldiers compelled Jews to offer ceremonial sacrifices to Zeus. The regular ritual sacrifices for atonement were stopped, and an image of Zeus, the Greek god of sky and thunder, the Roman equivalent of which was Jupiter, was set up above the altar of the Lord in the temple. Second half of verse 31 says, Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. This is that sacrilegious object that was so desecrating, so horrible, that no true pious Jew could ever worship that. Many Jewish people caved because they either feared for their life or they kind of wanted the money. And so they showed favor to Antiochus and forsook the Holy Covenant. Some resisted, however, we see in verse 32, with flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Now, Antiochus was cunning. He was charismatic. He was corrupt. He was a whole bunch of other C words, but he knew how to get what he wanted, and he did so using all available means. And he could flatter some of the right people to influence other people. He could win them over and make the other people feel like maybe he's on their side. And you have a lot to gain by lining up with this guy because he's powerful. And he could give gold and silver away to people who were weak-willed enough to take that bribe and be bought. And so thousands of Jews gave their allegiance to Antiochus and therefore to Zeus. But there were also thousands of courageous Jews who trusted Yahweh, who refused to convert, and they defied Antiochus. Many of those faithful Jews were killed by the sword, one man who would not bend the knee, and this is what we get from history, it's not mentioned specifically in Daniel 11, but we know this from the clear lens of history. One guy that would not bend the knee to Antiochus was named Mattathias. Soldiers under Antiochus's orders tried to force all the residents of Mattathias's hometown to sacrifice to, to Zeus. So you know what Mattathias decided to do? I'm gonna tear down the pagan altar. 
Okay, there's some defiance for you. He and his five sons, oh, the last name, Maccabeus. Mattathias Maccabeus. He and his five sons, known um, in Hebrew terminology as the Maccabeus brothers. I don't know if that was a Hebrew term or the Egyptian term. But anyway, it's the five boys that became very famous in history. And the one who became the real leader of those five was Judas Maccabeus. Daniel 11.33 says, Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. Now, Mattathias was a priest of Yahweh. So he was one of these guys who would actually instruct others with wisdom, the wisdom of Yahweh. And he would organize them because he had the gift of administration, obviously, based on the fact that he was so strategic in so many of the things that he did. And because he knew scriptures, he probably knew that God had predicted this type of oppression that Antiochus IV was bringing to Israel. And he was prepared for it. I think that's a good lesson for us. We know that there is going to be further persecution of the Christian church. We need to be prepared to hang tough, to stand firm, but we also need to be prepared to stand firm the way Jesus Christ would have us stand firm. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a couple of moments. So he had already been instructed through the wisdom of God, and so he, Mattathias, stood firm, refusing to worship any other God but Yahweh. He instilled courage and wisdom in those who continued to remain committed to Yahweh and to fight back against the leader who sought to do away with the worship of Yahweh altogether. So these highly motivated refugees led by Mattathias became skilled. And remember, this is that time in history. This is not this time in our history when this is acceptable. But back then, this is how they fought back. They became skilled with guerrilla warfare. And they led missions against strategic targets, making life difficult for many of Antiochus's soldiers. Mattathias was already pretty old when he tore, tore down the pagan altar and fled to the desert and started organizing these militia. It wasn't too long after he began organizing this insurgent army before he died. And he had trained his sons well, and Judas took over as the leader of this group of rebels, Judas Maccabeus. This young man had exceptional leadership and strategic abilities. Even though this group didn't receive any help from their Jewish brothers, as we saw from verse 34 in the prediction, they did keep up the fight and held out hope for an ultimate victory because they believed that God was on their side. So remember last week when I said it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog? They had a lot of fight, even though they were outnumbered. It says also in Daniel 11 that some resisted, and that would have been the militia, but some joined this little band together and they resisted them, but with different motives. Some of them were, uh, they had different motives that weren't altogether good necessarily. There's an example of Antiochus's craftiness and deceitful methods in verse 34. Many who are not sincere will join them. The New English translation says it this way, but many will unite with them deceitfully. What would that mean? Well, uh, there's some speculation that there were probably plants, people who would be infiltrating their ranks sent by Antiochus to try to find out what their plans were and report back. So that might have been some of what that deceitful joiners 
was referring to. But there were others who joined because of different motives. Maybe it was nationalistic motives. Maybe some just wanted revenge personally because of certain things that had happened to their family members. Some were just selfish and they wanted fame and glory. So as is always the case, there's mixed motives in a range of reasons why people are a part of a group. And so they would align themselves one way or another, but they wound up in this hodgepodge band of insurgents. That would have been a difficult kind of group to lead. <laughs> it almost makes me think of Moses trying to lead the children of Israel across the wilderness, out of Egypt and toward the promised land. There's a lot of different kinds of personalities involved in a group like that. And God somehow managed to get the job done despite the myriad of personalities represented. The battle against those Syrian forces proved very difficult. Antiochus continued gaining supporters for his cause, even among Jews in Israel, because he was so conniving and forceful and charismatic. There were times when Antiochus appeared to be winning with his deceitful methods. That's the way it seems sometimes in this fallen world. Evil appears to be getting the upper hand, but those who continue to trust God know that he has made provision for the injustice in the world. And ultimately, we know this for a fact. He is going to win out. Well, verse 35, some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. There's that phrase again. For it will still come at the appointed time. Daniel learned from his heavenly messengers that some of the wise among the faithful would stumble. By looking at history, we can see that in Judas Maccabeus's group, there were some who stumbled. When persecution comes in different forms, there are different ways in which the faithful can stumble. It happens today. We learned about one person's major stumble this morning in Growth Encounter when we looked at David and Bathsheba. People who lose sight of where their true satisfaction comes from or perhaps they just become content because of their uh, successes. Everything's going right for them, going well. They don't have to depend on the Lord, so they just wanna take what they can take. Whatever the, the motive is, there are people who stumble and they take their eyes off of God. There are others in the New Testament churches who forget that the weapons we fight with as instructed through the New Testament are not the same weapons the world fights with. We can think that it's okay for us to fight battles in the same way the world fights. And we ought to know better. Paul tells us that the weapons God has given us to fight with are used, quote, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. The passage doesn't really say specifically how people stumbled back in Daniel 11, only that they did stumble. The heavenly messenger's words to Daniel show that these believers' temporary departure from their faithfulness to Yahweh would eventually result in their refinement or purification and cleansing until the time of the end, for it is still for the appointed time. What is the time of the end? Well, here we have that phrase once again, and I mentioned sometimes it can refer to a specific period of history that's being discussed, or it can mean the time of the end meaning the last season of history prior to Christ's coming again. In this 
case because we have the lens of history and knowing that the context here is the season of history related to Antiochus IV and his time of the end, it's talking about that specific season. So the time of the end would be God's appointed time to get rid of Antiochus once and for all. I think about some of our friends that we made when I was in Zimbabwe on a mission trip and we've maintained some ties with him through Facebook. And Gary Cross has maintained such a solid faith. He's been so faithful in the work at uh, the church that he pastors in Zimbabwe. They've had a tough history. And even when I was there, uh, the previous leader was just running everything into the ground. Hunger was rampant. He was taking fields, but not replacing people who owned the fields with people who actually knew how to farm them. And so they couldn't grow enough food to feed everybody. Starvation was becoming real. Everything was spiraling out of control in that country. There were a whole lot of Christians in that country. I mean, a lot. And they probably felt very similar to the children of Israel were feeling about this time in Antiochus's reign in that part of the world. And they would pray, they would meet together. Sometimes they would have to meet secretly because if anybody got wind, and there were a lot of ears around, if anybody got wind that any of the prayer meetings were turning political, even if they were praying for the removal of a political leader, they could be arrested. It was tough. But they absolutely refused to retaliate with the weapons that the world uses. And they said, this is going to be nonviolent. We're not going to go there. We're not going to send somebody in to try to assassinate anybody. That's not what God would approve of. We can't break God's laws to accomplish God's will. We have to do it God's way. And they hung in there year after year after year. And finally, this man who was in exile himself, Robert Mugabe, had to move to another country. He was sick. He was lonely. He died much older than people expected him to be at that time. But he finally died. It wasn't all that long ago, it was 2019. There were several different elections, some of which had always been, they had always been rigged when Mugabe was in charge, but they had some cooperation to an extent that they hadn't seen before. And things have slowly begun to shift. They've had some bumps in the road, there's still ups and downs, but I'm telling you, there are some people like Gary Cross who continues to hold out the truth of the gospel in his church in Harare and many, many others like him. And that makes me feel this connection to some of the people in Israel as they were dealing with a despot leader who wanted nothing more to than to control and to maintain his power at all costs, even though he would run other people into the ground and kill a lot of innocent people in the process. I can imagine that for those of us who see different kinds of persecution starting to come at us, we need to take heart and to look at people like Israel in this day and Zimbabwe in just the last 30 or 40 years and understand that God is still the same God. We can still trust God as the sovereign leader of all nations and we can stand firm on the gospel. So what are some applications for us? Well, verse 32 contains words of hope and a call to resist being swayed away from worship in spirit and truth of God, the creator of heaven and earth. The New American Standard says it this way, the people who know their God will be strong and take action. We know that Antiochus isn't the last leader on earth, 
who has persecuted God's people and has tried to lead people away from faith in God. There is the spirit of the Antichrist still at work, even today. We see it. It's rampant. It's evident. Those among the church, all those who are placing their faith in Jesus, who know their God, will be able to stand firm on the same gospel that saved them. Now, I'm not saying that the Antichrist is present on the earth today. I'm saying that the spirit of the Antichrist is still at work. And we still see it being manifested through different leaders who would like to be able to sway us away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul knew about standing firm and he knew about being persecuted. He was one of the persecutors before he converted, in fact. And he knew what it meant to stand firm on his sure foundation of Jesus Christ. And he said it was worth it all to give up everything he had when he had a lot of power and control. He gave all that up. He said, those who know God by knowing his word will expect persecution. But Paul, through his life, evidenced that you can stand firm and take appropriate actions as God's children. He said, everything else is worthless. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, refuse, dung, so that I could have I could gain Christ and become one with him. We've all experienced loss of one sort or another over the past 14 months. All of us. But let's be honest. When we look at all that Paul lost when he wrote those words, we've got to admit that, at least most of us anyway, we just haven't even come close to losing all that Paul lost. And yet, Paul wanted more than anything else to gain Christ because that's how he would gain all the joys of being with Christ in eternity through his resurrection. Paul had found purpose when he saw Jesus clearly. And we can too. Paul had thought that he was doing God a favor when he was protecting his legalistic religious rule. But when he met Jesus, I mean really met the real Jesus, he gained a brand new perspective. His new purpose was to know Jesus and to make him known. He wanted to make sure that as many people as possible came to know the love and grace of the one who died in his place and who conquered sin and death and rose again to prove it. For the rest of his life on earth, Paul poured himself out sacrificially to other people, and get this, including those who took away his freedoms. We dare not miss that. He witnessed to his captors. He won the hearts of his jailers. He even baptized one man and his entire household after an earthquake had shaken the prison down and the doors opened and Paul could have escaped, but he was still there. And he said, don't fall on your sword, I'm still here. In looking back at a pandemic that took all of us by surprise and which unfortunately caused a lot of us to see things in people, including ourselves, that we might not have thought were the best things. It sort of revealed what was really deep in our hearts that came out to the surface pretty readily. I was impressed as I looked at this song by Sarah Groves, and it seemed to resonate in my spirit about what I would hope that we as believers could think of as we're thinking about a future standing firm on the gospel. In an interview, 
Sarah, one of my favorite singers and uh, troubadours for the gospel, explains why she begins her 2007 album, Tell Me What You Want to Know, with Song for My Sons. I hadn't heard this one before. This one goes far enough back that this was an old song that became new to me. She said, I wondered how my kids would finish the statement. My mother always said, what would they say besides you get what you get or don't throw a fit or that doesn't fit in your nose. <laughs> I would hope that there was something that stood out as the message of my life, says Sarah. Song for my sons, she said, is based on Matthew 24, 12 through 13, where Jesus tells the disciples that in the end times, there will be an increase of evil. He says, the love of most will grow cold, but some will stand firm to the end and they'll be saved. Sarah says, I think my sons will face things that I can't even comprehend. And that evil, that darkness, that hurt will make them want to shut their hearts. Even now, believers are shutting up their hearts and they're closing the windows and locking the doors. But Jesus says, I want you to keep your door open in the face of terrorism, in the face of all the ills that this world has to offer. And I would add, in the face of pandemics. She says, I want you to keep your heart open and love your God and love your neighbor. That preached to me because Frankly, it hurts my heart to see believers shut their hearts to people who are desperate for Christ. And it's amazing to me. I, I had a little uh, conversation with my friend Rick last Monday, and I said, it's amazing to me to look around and see what kind of hills people choose to die on. And Rick wisely said, or which ant hills? And I thought, yeah, sometimes we'll make a, a mountain out of an ant hill and choose that as the hill to die on. And Paul would say, the gospel, the gospel is the hill to die on. Anything else is secondary. And I will give up everything, everything, and count it all as garbage for the sake of the gospel of Christ and to stay with him forever in eternity. Folks, we've got to jettison stuff that becomes mountains made out of anthills. If we're gonna be the true church, as we start to move back into a building, Living Water, we got to replant. It's time for us to replant on the gospel of Jesus Christ. we got to get rid of all the stuff that we have made so much bigger than it should have been in our lives. And we've got to elevate Jesus Christ. we got to lift him up and exalt the name of Jesus Christ, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's do that. When we start gathering together again, let's become the church, the true church of Jesus Christ. Because frankly, the little bits of things that we have thought were persecution, anthills. It's been minuscule, folks. I've talked to people who are in other countries. The stuff that they're dealing with, oh my goodness. I want us to get prepared so we really can stand firm because there will be future persecutions. It's going to be much worse. It's going to be step two of setting the arm that's broken. There are going to be some very painful times in the church's history, and they still will come. But here's the good news. If we'll keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we will be able to stand firm because just like the prediction from Daniel, 
Those who know God will stand firm to the end. Let's fix our eyes on him. Let's plant our feet on him as the rock of our foundation, the cornerstone. And let's keep standing firm and loving God and loving our neighbors. Let's pray. Father, I see in myself how easy it is for me to shut my heart because of the ills and the evils in the world. I recognize that. It's a human tendency. And I pray that the battle will be won in my heart as I look to you and that you will cleanse me from the sin that erupts within me as I start to replace love with hatred for people who differ from me. And I pray that all of us as a church will learn to love people so readily that people will say, man, I need what you've got. I wanna be drawn to that kind of grace, to that kind of love. And we can only give grace if we've received it. So I pray that we'll all be open-armed recipients of your grace and that your grace will then flow through us to other people so they'll clearly see Jesus Christ because you're the only way to our salvation. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.